Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. Every company has a story to tell, from the small startup to the large enterprise, and everything in between. This is one of them. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. cool info I uncovered last night. Last night? Yep. Were you doing some research? I was doing a ton of research. And I found in the dark there. web? Yep. I was out there, in yeah. there, deep in, in there. Down there? Yeah. <laughs> but it's mine. I'm keeping it. I'm not so you're not going to share it? No. I'm selfish uh, that way. I guess if I want to know what I'm going to protect my own self. If you don't want to know what you know, I'm going to have to find out myself. You spend all that time that I spent and go do it. It's fun. Yeah. That's selfish. I don't think it's good for for the community, for society in general. So, I hope somebody would do something about this. Right, and that hopefully there's somebody that uh, is looking at this problem. Yeah, and it's not me. It's not me. No, I'm, I'm plus not we're on video. We are on video too for those yeah. that are not listening to the podcast, and right. they can see that there is uh, two good friends of ours and two good uh, friends and two good friends and two uh, morons. Shooting, shooting <laughs> the one in black and white. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, no, this is this this is cool. This is a a chance to connect with our good friend Philippe Humo and uh, another good friend Phil Wiley, uh, also known as the Hacker Maker. He's the host of the Hacker Factory here on uh, ITSP Magazine, and this is uh, Chapter Two, right, Marco? It is chapter two, yes. Uh, it's chapter two with the crowd sack. We kind of did the origin story, as we like to call it, every time that we start a conversation with a with a new company that we present, why they started, what they started, the vision, the mission, where they're standing, and where, where are they bringing to the community, the InfoSec, the cybersecurity community, and by doing that also what they bring to society as i mentioned before and to the businesses that are going to use their services so in this chapter we're actually lucky to have phil with us and i think it's going to be a much more open conversation based on the experience that you have in the field so i think i already spoke way too much why don't you go ahead introduce <laughs> who we have here maybe they will introduce themselves as well that's usually the best thing we can do and uh let's get it started Yes, so uh, let's start with Philippe. All right, so that has to be me because Philippe goes yeah, by Yeah, we're, we're going to so. go Philippe and Phil. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Philippe, CEO of CrowdSec, co-founder as well. And um, like Phil, I share a fantastic background, but I turned into defensive securities uh, kind of a decade ago, at the same time as I turned into business, by the way, and um, decided to create this uh, company called CrowdSec, some so, some kind of ways of firewalls, if you want a massively multiplayer firewall, where everybody is sharing information about the aggression they receive and how to stop them further. Love it. And uh, I am going to share chapter one is available. So definitely go listen to it because it's a great, great origin story. Uh, Philip. Hey, thanks for, for uh, allowing me to join today. I'm really interested in this conversation. I did a little uh, research on CrowdSec, and it was a really interesting product. And for those of you that are joining that don't know of me, uh, I spent 10 years as a pen tester, a little over 18 years in cybersecurity. Uh, I've also been a teacher at a college teaching 
uh, ethical hacking and web app pen testing. So it's an honor to be joining today and really cool to, to hear about your product, Philippe. And, and an author. Great book. I know it gets a lot of respect in the community as well. Um, I want to uh, lead off, I think, with the pen testing. Um, maybe because I think, to your point, Philippe, the, there's offense and defense, right? So most folks listening to this are going to recognize that they're both sides, and then you, you mix the red and blue, and you get the purple in the middle. I'd like to first understand your experience, both of your experience in pen testing and how that relates to to the defensive side. So, Philippe, you, you actually made the transition from one to the other. Maybe we start with you and maybe some, some insight from you on why that transition, and then, Phil, uh, maybe your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think for pen testing specifically, you cannot stay at the top of this field for too long. Uh, at least I could not. It's it's extremely demanding. You constantly have to learn. It's a, it's a very steep, constant learning curve where you have to get a lot of information flawlessly. And um, and it's day in, day out. You don't really have weekends or family life or whatever. So it is interesting. It's fascinating. It's been probably among the best years of my life, professional life. Really enjoyed what I did. And it was that really amazing. We're involved in so many uh, crazy stuff, like even spy stories and stuff like that. It's, it's amazing. Awesome, really. But the thing is, somehow defending, being in the blue team, is even harder because if you take a large company with a large surface you will breach in the question is not whether you will breach in or not you will that's 100 percent sure like 99.99 really but the question is more like in how much time and how much difficulty you will face before being inside the company at least 10 years back it was like this now um for the defense part it's really complicated you have to be constantly good you don't have to like exploit and be brilliant one day one time one hour and finding your way in you have to be constantly good uh, uh, and systematically fold any attack that is launched at you. And somehow, at some point in my career, it represented a greater challenge than staying in this offensive security field. And also, I wanted to have a family life. And, uh, you know, I, I was less able to constantly be on the lookout for any new information, any new exploit, trying to reverse it, understand it, and so on. So it was a good transition for me. And it was at the same time a moment where I could switch to business. Uh, which I wanted to. So altogether, it made sense to create defensive, uh, um, you know, infrastructure and tools. And and Phil, I want to get your perspective on this because over time, I'm wondering, have things changed? I mean, you invest a lot in finding that pathway in, right? And you do your own research and you look for vulnerabilities and maybe you can describe what, what you do. But has it changed over time? Uh, the, the, the role of pen testing and, and how easy it is to do, perhaps? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's inter interesting that you mentioned that. It, it's gotten easier to do some things, but the technology has gotten harder to hack into. I mean, because when I first got started in 2012, I'd kind of moved over from an AppSec role. I was in AppSec for about seven years and moved over to, to pen testing. And back then you had the MSO6, MS0867 vulnerability with, with like XP and Windows 2000, which if you saw that in the environment, you were able, you're in. There weren't all the advanced endpoint protections. You had some antivirus at the time. And trying to bypass stuff was fairly easy. A lot of times you didn't have to do it. Now it's more difficult. There's tools out there that automate, but the job has gotten harder. So in some sense, it's easier. In some sense, it's more difficult. I think it's a more difficult job now than when when I started 
and and just kind of to you know agree with what Philippe said trying to keep up with offensive security it's really tough to be at the top of your game and because you spend a lot of late hours because I remember early on when I was first learning I'd be up to three three o'clock five a.m in the morning and then turn I have to go to work you know I was working through like the OSCP course trying to learn how to hack I had vulnerability scanning experience some appsec experience but had zero hacking skills so I had to build that so you know you're spending a lot of time outside of work learning because during the day you have to do your job. So I can kind of agree with that. And that's kind of part of the reason I've put more focus on mentoring and teaching and that sort of thing. And now I work for a vendor, so I'm not doing that full time in the hours too, Philippe, I'm sure can attest to sometimes the hours are not so great. Sometimes you have to test after hours. So you're not taking systems down. And, and so sometimes that's one of the things I think a lot of people that are wanting to get into pen testing, if they understood some of those things, they might, take a different path into security if they understood some of the hours and the pains you go through as a pen tester. So when we started this, Sean and I were, sh of course, we always make a joke to start and it's about sharing, right? You find something, you don't share it. How much easier would be life if there was this sharing in the community? And, and you know, and, and like is it, you said something like, Phil, was a well-known vulnerability, but it's well-known when you actually somebody find it and share it with the other. So, Philip, the reason why you started this, I know we mentioned it last time, but it will be a good reminder before we dig a little bit even deeper into this conversation, the importance of sharing this compared with what the bad guys are doing out there that treat this as a business and they only have one goal, which is that's attack. And we have to let the business do the job as well. Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, and, and it's really interesting, they were the first one sharing. Actually, if you think about the, the, the cyber criminals, they were the first DevOps as such, you know, automating most tasks, um, making everything that is recurring very efficient, uh, efficiently. And um, they are sharing. They are constantly sharing. They, I don't know any meaningful, large, dangerous cyber criminal group that is not sharing with the other, affiliating, partaking into operations, um, you know, or developing one exploit that will be weaponized or monetized by someone else. So on the offensive side, and I don't speak here about like the Pentester, I really speak about the cyber criminals, they are sharing constantly. They are working together constantly. And back in but the day- they're also competitors, right? They are also it's not competitors. Like it's not like they're not competing with each other. No, they are. They are somehow, but a lot of groups are meaningful because they do share information, they do share IPs, they do share uh, payloads and stuff like that. And I, I remember having a talk with Miko Iponen at some point, and he told me, like, back in the days, the guy were not sharing in the uh, antivirus community, right? So when one would have a signature, the other one would not know about it. And what it meant basically is that if you wanted to be covered 100%, you would have to have like five or six antivirus which everyone understood was not possible and not wishable because the budget are not extensible to that extent and the machine would you know slow the crowd down and it would be unusable so at some point they started to have like a sharing of those uh, insights and iocs and eventually virus total took over and everybody started to share their their signature of malware so sharing is in the nature of cybersecurity, but it should be uh, a logical thing to do for the defender because since we are more numerous, we, are, we have the demography speaking for us, and we have few advantages in this war, but demography is one of them. 
by sharing all together, we are all stronger. Like we saw with Waze, for example. Waze is about sharing your position, your location, your direction, and what happens on the road and your speed and stuff like that. And, and it, it tremendously uh, fluidified the, the circulation in many countries. And actually, it made the road safer for a lot of people. So it's by sharing we, we attain this objective. And there is no uh, complex problem like cybersecurity that you can treat alone. It's a complex problem by definition. You need a team to make this happen, like sending a rocket to the moon, right? So here, I think sharing is the cornerstone of what we should do. And uh, it's not so complicated. It's just about like tooling the people so that can they can collaborate together. Because naturally, mankind seem to collaborate pretty nicely on average. Of course, there are fatal exceptions in this. Uh, there there but, are the exception for sure. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Well, I like you said uh, safer. And I think we can recognize and, and uh, appreciate that from, from a driving perspective, from a personal perspective. I think companies still have a hard time figuring out the balance between sharing information and, and safety. Most organizations, in my experience, is they're based or most decisions are based on how efficient can we be, how much revenue can we generate, how much cost can we save. And so that's why I was joking around. It's not just the information that, that I shared. I, I was telling Marco, fine, you want that information? Go spend all the time that I did <laughs> to, to, to get that same information. And I know, Phil, maybe you can share some of your thoughts. Clearly, there are other examples in the security industry where we crowdsource resources to help save time and money and effort and frustration and actually end up where we want to get to uh, versus maybe not even finding the information because your team didn't have the, the skills to go and get it. Yeah. And that you mentioned that and, you know, speaking a, a crowd sec, how this is helpful, you know, we think of, you know, you have bug bounties and crowdsource pen testing. You have a bunch of different pen testers out there looking for these vulnerabilities. But I think one of the things that we don't, that sometimes as consumers, you know, security organizations don't think about it, the over the real value in that is this diverse mindset of people finding vulnerabilities different ways, not so much the vulnerability on this particular vendor's application, but the way it's exploited. Now they know how to exploit this stuff. They share it. This didn't exist before. So sharing that and, and just, you know, same thing that with uh, CrowdSec sharing the IP addresses, that's good. And one of the things I want to make sure to mention before I forget, forget, you know, uh, having a freemium model and sharing that information is great because one of the things, not all organizations, there's nonprofits, small companies that can't afford the security staff. And we need to make things more affordable for those companies because overall we need to, you know, make sure everything is secure. People can donate time to help, but when you got models like this, where someone's got a freemium model, they're even sharing information, even though maybe they're using it for free, they're sharing valuable information so as you mentioned, how valuable that is to share, sharing those malicious IP addresses and stuff is is very, very valuable. And, you know, overall, as a world, we need to share that information to make things secure. When you keep things to yourself, if you have a certain type of attack or a certain threat actor coming after you, you don't share it, then someone else could be breached, you know, as a result of it. And Philippe, I'd like just to give people a visual of what we're talking about here, because we're kind of being a bit abstract. What information are we sharing? I think. IPs have come up a couple of times, but very clearly 
what are you sharing? What are, what do you, what does your platform offer uh, in terms of information that uh, organizations can contribute to and then benefit from? Yeah, actually, that's really important because, um, you know, we have this security uh, rule set in Europe that is called GDPR, uh, which basically is about like data privacy. And IP address, as a matter of fact, is considered a private data. So we can argue whether it's a good thing or not, but in the end, it, it is, period. So we share the strict minimum we, we should to process the thing. So basically your logs are not exported somewhere else, like in the cloud and treated offsite. They are treated locally. And that for two reasons. One, one because we want to be cost effective. So if we export your logs and start treating it in a workload in the cloud, it's going to cost more than just exporting the metadata, obviously. The second thing is, since it's local, you don't, you don't infringe anything, right? So you control everything. And you can eventually disable the sharing if you want and just pay a premium to get the data. It works for us as well. Now, what is exported to answer your exact question, uh, Sean, is the timestamp. So when did the event occur? The, the uh, type of attack, the scenario that has been played against you, and the IP address, the offending IP address only that is behind it. Like your IP address as a defender is not shared at all. So those three data are the only thing that are exported. And if I want to be a bit technical, like the agent ID. So who, who sent it, but it's just an ID. We don't know who it is. It's just like to have unique count of how many times we saw this information flowing. Um, so we really share the strict minimum we can. And we really keep this information for the least amount of time we can. So meaning we are legally uh, entitled to keep them for a year. But after three months, we blur the IP address. So if it was like ABCD, it become like ABC.0 slash 24 for an IPv4 address. And um, if it was like at 12 hour, 34 minutes, uh, 57 seconds, it becomes like between uh, 12 and 1 p.m. So by blurring the IP address and blurring the timestamp, we cannot pinpoint directly one exact person. And it becomes a non-personal uh, data uh, information so that way we can keep up with the gdpr protect everyone and we have enough information to process who's dangerous or not and when so phil how does that sound yeah that's the, the, <laughs> that's pretty interesting and i noticed on the website too that you're like tracking log4j and that sort of thing is do you intend to expand more and show like some of the popular attack trends yeah yeah absolutely i mean log4j was a detonator like like Phil and I know, but probably the people listening around, uh, there's a CVE uh, scale and there's a rating, there's a grade, a note, right? So you can see it like a, a, a scale, the scale of an earthquake. So if you reach like five, it's meaningful. If you reach like six, it starts to be really, really dangerous, specifically if it's in the city. And if you're at like seven or eight, it's the end of the world, right? So, and it's, it's, it's exponential. So the, the bigger the number, like it's time 10 compared to the previous uh, scale. Now on the CVE scale out of 10, log4j score 10, okay? It means like considered from the CVE perspective, there's nothing more dangerous or it's it's the most dangerous stuff you can get. It's once every, what, Phil will correct me, but once in every two years, something like this, we get such tremendously dangerous stuff. Like uh, there was Eternal Blues, there was 067, like he mentioned, but they are really rare, those ones. So when log4j was out, we were like, okay, we need to do something. We, need, we have this, we have the scenario, so we can catch them. We can catch the early IP that are very aggressive on it. We can share them and everybody can protect himself. Why? Because there might be a hospital behind, right? We don't know who we're protecting, but a lot of people that are benefiting from the free product 
are, are, are things that are very sensitive, like hospital army or others, like NATO is using it for, for God's sake. So when it was out, even the Pentagon used, used and the DOD quoted us on that. It, it was useful. Everybody could protect himself. So would we do it for every uh, other vulnerability? Maybe not. We will publish a scenario. We will help people defend themselves against the scenario, like uh, the spring shell uh, lately and things like that. But will we publicize a, a lot or create trackers for every annual vulnerability? Unlikely. That was really uh, uh, so major that we had to do it. But we will provide the scenario to protect yourself against you know, major breach or stuff we can cover. Yeah, and just right, to kind so. of add, add to that, you know, for people listening, you know, that's a lot of other people, uh, companies and vendors in the industry. That's kind of the way they they do things. So you're not tracking every single vulnerability because, as Philippe mentioned, not all of them are critical or exploitable. So just for just some clarification for those listening, I want to hone on in on this uh, idea of the the scenario, uh, and maybe Phil, you can you can touch on this because. Even as a pen test, I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to not generate a log <laughs> that demonstrates you got popped, right? The goal is to identify that there's this threat that's active targeting these things, which you probably have in your organization, and it looks like this. So that you, either as a defense team or a protection team or a detection team or even a red team, can say, we have this covered. So... To start with, Phil, uh, your view on even just from the pen testers view or somebody on the red team inside the organization, how this information might prove useful as you go to see how much exposure you have in the organization. Yeah, as far, as far as that goes, when you're doing like a red team operation, you're trying to prevent logs from being protected. You know, normally on a pen test, you've got a limited number of time, so you really don't have time to be quiet. But, you know, that log information could be valuable if you're a pen tester, if you had that log information, you could go through and see how certain attacks are being uh, performed, you know, kind of similarly to the way someone would use the MITRE attack framework to, to get intelligence there to, to test out some attacks, common attacks against the organization. And Philippe, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the word comes to mind for me is playbooks. <laughs> I'm wondering, um, is that maybe, maybe you can describe the scenario where the information is used, how it's used, how it's operationalized to, who who takes it within the organization and what do they do with it? Yeah, sure. So we don't use the playbook term because it's been coined for the SOAR environment. So the stuff that are re-automating uh, a playbook like uh, Palo Alto or stuff like that, what they do is like, if this happened, then do that, 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 that on different places in the, in the infrastructure. Here, what we do is more like, we call it a scenario because what we look for is a behavior. So here is how it unfolds. Pretty much in everything speeds logs nowadays. Your car, your phone, your your TV, uh, maybe your microwave oven, and obviously servers and services, right? So within those logs, you suppose if they are properly configured to see nearly everything. Like we have with Phil some secret stuff in our stash, like server bullets that kills on distance a process, spawn a shell exploit, but it's extremely rare. Remote routes are extremely rare nowadays and extremely pricey. So we're not trying to defend you against those. More or less, even though you could log when a process dies in suspicious circumstances, it's absolutely not impossible, right? But so what we do is like say, did Marco really fail his password 10 times in a row in five minutes? Because, okay, it's Marco, it happens, but 10 Probab times. Probably I did, yes. <laughs> probably. Okay. <laughs> well, this behavior is known, we'll ignore it. But maybe Sean <laughs> reminds yeah, sure. that there's. 
he remembers there's a button for I forgot my password. So after three attempts, he will not just you know keep on hammering his password. So what we can deduce from that is it's it's a uh, credential brute force, right? So someone is trying to guess Marco's or Sean's password, uh, and that is very obvious. Or I can give you another uh, behavior. Like a lot of uh, compromissions lately are made with this example with like uh, Microsoft and um, who was at Samsung and Okta. They were compromised by a group of little teenagers that spawns like one is in every two years in, in UK. That happens every two years. The previous one was loose both. Now it's lapsus, whatever it is. And those kids were just buying credentials. So they were not geniuses. They were buying credentials. They say, okay, you're uh, doing maintenance. I don't know, you let Packard. All right, I'm going to buy your VPN credential, like 10K, right? And you just said that your laptop was stolen. Fine by you. Here's the Bitcoin. Thank you for the credentials. And, you know, and you're in. You're officially in. What do you want to do against that? It's someone that legitimately connected with the proper credential to your system. You're screwed. Well, no, you're not. Because this guy is connecting from UK, right? And maybe your, your partner that is dealing with this kind of errands is based in, say, Canada. So if someone is connecting from UK with those credentials and not Canada, that's a different behavior. And that can be dangerous. And that can be prevented, even though it's legitimate credentials. I can give you other examples. Like another behavior, another scenario can be scalping. Scalping is not illegal as such. It's like buying a PlayStation 5 that is on shortage automatically with a boat on the website, like on Walmart or Best Buy, and reselling it for a profit on eBay. That's absolutely legal. Like, it's pain in the ass for everyone, except for the men in the middle, but it's legal, right? But this behavior is very visible in the logs. We can block it. Or VOIP abuse, like people hammering the numbers and calling you automatically. All of these are, are, are behavior-based scenarios, and this is how they are born and how we protect it. So we brew them ourselves, but the community is producing a lot of them as well. And if you want to look for specific signals, say your HP, like I, I described before, and you want to have a, an alert when someone is connecting from an unusual location, for example, you can create your own scenarios. It's written in YAML. It's super easy to actually state what you want to look for. Yeah, and I, I want to bring Phil in the in the this so that you can bring the perspective from the you know, the, the hacking community, the, the pen testing, the professional, but not just in how I think it's clear that this sharing of knowledge brings a benefit to the community. But let's let's get into how you, then you translate this into a benefit for the business that you're protecting, because this is not just a game of, oh, there's the bad guy, you know, the cop and, and the criminal. We're doing this for a reason. So maybe some case scenario and how you can see it certain vertical that can benefit more than other and and mostly again what what is the value for society and the business itself i think pretty much any vertical could benefit but i think one of the areas that benefits the most it seems like companies with the smaller budgets can use more information like that when when you can afford all these fancy uh security softwares and devices you know it can take more of the thinking out of it but it seems i would say like your your local governments and and uh, some small organizations, something like that's very valuable to be able to share that that type of information. Because a lot of cases, that, you know, sometimes the people are not not saying this is always the case, but some people get their start in those type of roles. They don't pay as much, so they don't always draw the best talent. So it's good to be able to have that information shared with people that are not in the know about that. They may not know a lot about a lot of these other resources, may not have the know-how time to do the research and stuff. So that's where you know, sharing that type of knowledge is very helpful. But also, 
maybe Philippe, you, you may jump on this, but I feel like, you know, even the company with a lot of budget, why do they have to reinvent, you know, the wheel all the time? It's kind of weird to me. Yeah, and, and on top of that, what do you have now? I mean, we created CrowdSec for a reason as well. What do we have now uh, as a perspective? You can buy CTI right. information, right? And what has made CTI? Basically, it's honeypot systems. So it's simulated systems that run on one or two clouds with 100, 200 machines and uh, that report what attack they faced. Right? But those are just simulation, right? I mean, it's not realistic. I mean, people like cyber criminals, they don't have that. The one attacking randomly, they are the low-hanging fruits. They are super loud and they are very visible. Okay, fine. But they're not the real threat here. The real threat out there are the people that are attacking you, your business, your vertical, and they are aggressive toward your kind of uh, business. So let's take, for example, the media. We have a large media in France that is uh, very often aggressed. Uh, it's considered more or less neutral and very high. And like, you could call it like the New York Times or something like this. And um, those guys are aggressed by mainly states and governmental organization, more or less, and people that want to shut them down or you know keep the, the journalists shut. And the thing is, those IP addresses that are aggressive toward media are very specific. They are not aggressive toward automotive industry or toward energy industry or toward, I don't know, industrial systems or oil, gas, whatever. They are very specific on media. Same for e-commerce, same for other uh, line of work. So the importance we also have and bring in the context is we are not catching the low-hanging fruits. We are also verticalizing and contextualizing this. So if I tell you like this IP address is aggressive toward e-commerce, you can trust me because I have a lot of e-commerce running the software. And I can tell you like this IP I see only in e-commerce. So it's very fishy for e-commerce. Your media, you don't much care. I will not broadcast it to you except if it starts being aggressive toward media. But other than that, you know, keep it nice and tidy and small and efficient. We don't, we're not here to spam like billions of IPs. It doesn't make sense. We're here to spend, to send to you the 1% of IP address that we know are representing, so far we know 92% of the aggressions. And we leave the 8% to the behavior engine. That's fine like this. You know, one of the things I like to, when I add to that, one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting about that is you're able to provide information before people doing threat intelligence are able to identify certain APTs. You know, these APTs could run for years before people identify them and the TTPs and, and things that they're using. So be able to have just raw data of malicious activity could save save a lot of time. You could still do your threat intelligence and stuff, but why not make things easier when you can? Yeah, and on top of that, you're right. I mean, some people are, are willing to buy the raw data set. And actually, we're okay to run them because we don't consider the data set as being a, a real value as such. So even if it leaks, it has a very temporary value because those IP addresses are changing constantly. So the value is in the network able to generate it. So, But they want them for another reason. They want to train their AIs. So they need large data sets to train AIs. And we have large data sets. We don't over-contextualize things. We have like a context, we have like a behavior that's fine by us. It's enough for us to do the job. But if some people want to see how an IP is evolving over time or what it's carrying as a disease or malware or whatever over time, it's interesting to train AIs on, on those data sets. And I, I want to go uh, to Phil, because I'm just thinking, you mentioned diversity of thought. And yet uh, my experience, I'm looking at bug bounties here and just... When a bug bounty program gets put together, you look for, well, maybe a car company, maybe a media company, maybe a bank. Uh, 
they run different systems, right? A government, uh, an ICS can have different SCADA systems. They run different systems. The behavior you expect to see is going to be very different. Logins look different in a bank than they do on a in a, in a government, uh, I don't know, uh, power plant, for example. Um, I guess my point is you want the breadth of a large group of people that know well, in bug bounty, it's that they know how things work. But in this case, it's real behaviors targeting specific industries that you're, this is the only way you're going to get that kind of information. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking inside of your head a little bit here, Phil. You creating scenarios as you're attempting to break into an organization. That thought process, those scenarios, it's using this tool and this, and this credential and, and this uh, bit of knowledge to create that attack, right? And hopefully you get in. When you do, that information generates a log. Philippe captures it. So I guess my point of all, I'm going to stop rambling, is the, the value <laughs> the value of diversity of thought, but then recognizing and being able to pull that information out for a neighborhood, let's say. And I'm talking about a neighborhood of, of uh, hospitals, right? There's a hospital system comprised of doctors and labs and and clinics and all these things, you want that neighborhood protected, even if it's different companies, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know, but so your, your thoughts on some of that, so diversity of thoughts, sharing information to protect a larger group, um, and maybe a connection to the bug bounty. Yeah, I just think the, the power of that's valuable to be able to share that. And as kind of mentioned earlier, we need to get in the mindset of wanting to share, because, you know, it's kind of funny how things, it's interesting that the, the security world has gotten better about sharing because I remember earlier in my IT days, you always had that one Unix administrator that wouldn't share anything about how he did things because that's job security. If he shared it with you, then he's replaceable. And so it's good that people are, are starting to share. And that's one of the things that I like about bug bounty that really drew me in is the fact that, you know, the diversity of, of tools, you know, you're able to learn from that and just sharing the data in, uh, you know, kind of to backtrack and mention some of the same things, uh, you know, sharing this data, it's a good concept that we're, that Philippe is, is, is encouraging people to share information outside of, you know, uh, exploits and proof of concepts and stuff like that, sharing data. But uh, one of the things too, that's, that it kind of makes you think of, and that's some of the reasons people join some of these different groups. If you're, you know, in one of the critical infrastructures, then in the U.S., you join InfraGuard. It's a group that's associated with the FBI and they share, uh, you know, redacted information with them that they can use to protect the organizations. So this is something that you can do on a broader scale. It doesn't have to be, you know, like uh, I'm not sure all the the requirements to be a member of InfraGuard. You have to go through a background check and all this. And this makes information readily available because, you know, I'm an InfraGuard member. And when I joined, it took I don't know how many weeks or months to get checked checked out to be able to be part of the organization. This is information you're able to get right away. The more roadblocks we put in front of information, the harder it is for people to get it and be able to use it, you know, uh, actually right away. Well, even that's that's an exclusive club, right? Yes. So, yeah. So yes, you're sharing, but it's still exclusive to that exclusive, group. Exclusive. Yeah. And and what I and I'm not putting the infrared down by any stretch, yeah. but what I'm what I want to lead Philippe to is this idea of because that to me that's it that's 
data sharing, maybe information sharing. And, and Philippe, you mentioned, uh, I can't remember if we did this before we started recording, but the, the knowledge economy and that knowledge is much more valuable than information. And I think that's what you're generating with CrowdSec is knowledge, right? Because it's a group of people coming together and, and sharing their information more than just information. Yeah, absolutely. I think mankind uh, became the dominant species on Earth when we started to group together, actually, you know? So this lone, uh, super tough barbarian uh, hunter, you know, we all have like the alpha male vision in our head is absolutely not reliable. You cannot like win this on the long term. Mankind achieved the better stuff by, you know, collaborating on a large scale, like the James Webb telescope, like you couldn't do it. Uh, you know, along. So sharing is the key to a greater achievement here. Absolutely. It's a mindset and it, it will lead us to the next stage of our evolution. And this information society we're building all together is exactly this. I mean, we constantly share and it's enriching more or less everyone. So the, the knowledge economy to me is about like, there's a huge difference between a physical good and an information uh, data. Like the physical good, if you give it away, it's over. Yeah, you don't have it anymore. You can resell. You cannot resell it a second time, except if you're, you know, a crook. But other than that, it's over. The, the actually the information, the more it's shared, the more it's um, uh, available, the the larger the value become. And it's not because you gave it one time that you cannot give it or sell it a second time. So I'm thinking this economy uh, is is a bigger. Fish and anything before, and this is what the GAFAM and others understood very early. Actually, data is everything, and but what did I mean? I think the next stage of this is like sharing the data is everything. Uh, if you can act as a hub for that, you become uh, a, a very interesting uh, platform for everyone. Like for example, that we had people coming to us saying, "Well, since you have a system that actually distribute IP addresses are dangerous, and you also provide the IPS that goes with it." Can we give you IP addresses? Like, where are they coming from? Of our honeypot network, but they are reliable. Okay, you know what I'm doing? Fine, I will distribute your IP addresses. I'll just put a tag coming courtesy of. It gives it for free. That's for you to take. You know, we don't vouch for this, but if this flux is good, it helps you, fine. Ledger is offering us the, the cryptocurrency, you know, wallet, cold wallet, is offering us to the IP addresses that are aggressive toward the blockchain. Since they are giving it to us, we are giving it to our crowd. No problem. And they're like, we are not equipped to organize this data transfer, this GDPR compliance and all. So since you've dealt with it already, take the stuff, tell it come from, coming from us, and we are fine with this. That's enough for us. And, uh, you know, you'd be surprised how many people just want to contribute, just want to help the others. It's something that looks maybe um, from, from some perspective, it looks naive. But the reality is the vast majority of people, if you ask them, like, would you run a software knowing that it's going to protect the next door hospital? They will say yes. They'll be happily saying yes. And sometimes I jump in the conversation in our uh, Discord and um, discussing with the guys and they are devising complex systems using it in absolutely uh, weird manners that we didn't think about. And that's the beauty of it. We couldn't think about everything. Some people are passing pacemakers signals, like seeing when there's a, a different behavior in the heartbeats. But yeah, we are looking for behaviors. As a matter of fact, pacemakers are generating logs. So guess what? That works. Some people are passing plane logs because actually planes, you know, the switch, the engine, the direction and everything, they are logged. 
So if something is going astray from like more than 2% on the regular flight Paris to New York, there's a problem. The, the plane can be in jeopardy. So it's again a behavior. So sharing is important for the safety of everyone is important. And this economy is generating more value by sharing and it's not losing actually. This is what people don't get. You know, by sharing, we create value. That can sound weird, but it's a reality. I just love how yeah. you went all philosophical and sociological <laughs> and anthropology. And that's my kind of thing. But, you know, I, I always think about when you're doing the, the example of you know the shaman in the tribe that it's like, no, I own the power because I know how to do things and everybody just li to listen to me. But you're not improving the society itself. Right. So I love how you actually gave some concrete example, too, of our lines. I mean, stuff that saved life. In the medical industry you want to add something i saw you yeah yeah yeah. i mean i was just thinking you know some the last weekend i i brought my kid to the pool right swimming pool and the girl at the front office was having a terrible headache funny story about headaches you know where it comes from like these people that have constant like very bad migraine and that they come headache. from marco yeah that that and there are other sources <laughs> i'll take that too thank you <laughs> well, it, it's, it's been found that actually DNA-wise, there's a small group of people that always have been, ever since the Dark Ages, very sensitive to changes, like mm. upcoming weather changes, upcoming food changes, upcoming water, water change and stuff like that. And they would protect the group. Actually, they are kind of the canary in the mine. If you see that mm. this guy or girl has a headache, something will be happening for the group. So obviously nowadays it doesn't make more sense, any more sense, but... It comes from a group perspective. And by sharing, by knowing this, they share the knowledge that if this person is feeling bad, the whole group is in jeopardy. You see? And this is exactly the same stuff we're replicating somehow. Mm. And I As we go with that, sorry, Sean, but I, I want Phil to, to jump in this because I know how much he's involved with the community. I mean, he is at the core of this community, like many others, of course. But, you know... And I know how you collaborate one with the other. I mean, we listen to this story all the time. So I'm wondering, like, what needs to break in, in, the, in the more, like, profession, business? I mean, when, when you work for a company, you're in that group. Why all this higher-level group, not just the individual collaborating with each other, but the, the group that collaborated, like the hospital, the airlines, the, the, everything that we just talked about just to make everybody a lot more secure what, what's your thought on that like what what needs to happen here we're really it, you know the biggest way to do that is just through community different organizations online you know some people communicate communicate a lot information security community on twitter and, and linkedin so those are some less structured ways of sharing but otherwise in communities uh you know and some of these groups, you know, I mentioned InfraGuard earlier. There's other groups that you can, that you don't have to apply to become a member of, but you just have to be active in groups. And I think if someone that's listening, you're not involved in some groups, you're really missing out. Being part of the community, you can learn so much more because how I originally found out about Bug Bounty was to improve my web application pen testing skills and following people in the Bug Bounty community. So I think the people that aren't involved in community need to get more involved because if you're the community is sharing, you're not part of it. You're just going to, you're totally going to miss out. How are you going to find out about, you know, these uh, resources and knowledge? Yeah, I think that that's critical. And, and you mentioned 
NATO, and it drummed up uh, a thought for me, Philippe, and and your scenario about the the, the pacemakers. And I'm just thinking it, it's not it, a few thoughts here. The first is it, it's not just the hospital protecting itself in IT security fashion, right? There's a lot within the hospital. There's IT and OT. And it's not just the hospital. It's the, the doctor's office next door, and it's the clinic, and it's the pharmaceutical company that makes that. It's in the, it's the telcos that support the networks that connect those things together. Um, it's the supply chain that brings all the elements together that produces the, the medication that, that supports the, the hospital and the doctors. It, it's all these things together, IT, OT, ICS, IOT, all these things, not just one that you're able to kind of see if people contribute, organizations contribute, you can get a big picture of here's what's going on. It's, it's a community under attack on all these systems from this group of people trying to do something. And I, I think just the, the, and that's why I brought up NATO before. I'm just thinking the, the big picture here that you can power from an information, from a knowledge perspective is incredible in my opinion yeah and here you see like we know the value of intel right because if you see how ukraine they are fighting like lions that's that's an absolutely sure thing but they are extremely efficient because the u.s uh, are bringing a lot of information you know constantly they are feeding the ukrainian army with whatever they have as, as an intel i mean so we see the value of it and we see the value of it vertically you're right i mean if you see how IoT is done and what are the classical trends on IoT, you will find that there are groups that are only after IoT, like the one after MicroTik are willing to create a botnet. The one that are, were after the cameras before that were willing to create a botnet to be able to have a DDoS and a big trigger. And when they pull it, they will you know, shut down operations on whomever and ask for a ransom. That's a, that's a line of work, actually. Those guys are specialized, extremely specialized. So when they do this, and as, as we touched on with Phil, we, you don't have time to learn everything everywhere. So those guys are good at one thing, yeah, compromising IoT, making big botnets and renting them. Fine. Right. When we disrupt their operations, uh, we know what they are targeting, how they do it, and what they were using it and whom against. And this is where the concept, contextualization of the information, and this is why people helping by saying, okay, I'm an e-commerce, I'm a media, I'm a hospital, I'm an automotive factory or whatever, I'm a NATO uh, agent or, or association. All of this has value. And it gives us a context that we can then reshare with everyone because our goal is never to keep that for ourselves. It's never been and it will never be. So when NATO is using the product, I'm so delighted. I'm super happy. That that help them in whatever way, and I don't have to know about how, but I'm super happy. I know some other armies in the world are using it. And um, I'm guessing they are protecting their country and their citizens and their armies, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And some of that will protect the car manufacturing uh, systems because they don't want the, uh, the firmware to be compromised. Can, can you imagine like if one day a big car manufacturer is compromised and the firmware is implanted and the cars goes on the road and the guy is like, okay, I control 1 million cars. I can crash them tomorrow. You owe me 10 billion. What do we do? Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> there mean, are plenty of scenarios like this. Yeah, and too, I know. Too many. I, the, well, <laughs> too the, many. More, the more you, you mention one, and, and you, you know, I go back to the airplane, to the medical, but I, I just see like the entire future it relies on this. And 
I think it took a little too long to get here, but I'm glad that we are. Maybe because it's the technology that is helping to sharing more. I mean, let's very quickly look at the medical again with during the pandemic. I mean, look at what we've been able to do from a scientific perspective by sharing. So I don't think we need to have any more, you know, demonstration of this. We don't have to make stuff up. I mean, we've just seen that happen. So, Philip, Phil, it, you started this conversation by talking about how things have changed, how, you know, maybe easier was back in the day, but at the same time, maybe you couldn't share this much because you didn't have the technology to all work together on something as we're doing now. At the same time, there is artificial intelligence that Philip mentioned on how you can feed the data to do the, you know, the, the threat discovery much easier, maybe. I don't know, probably it's going to get more complicated as we go. But the technology nowadays and how do you see the next piece of the advanced technology that the security industry can take? And I'm assuming, at least in my head, how sharing is going to be probably a very, if not the core factor into this, where technology and humanity kind of come together to really be better than what we are now in security. But what's your thought on that? Yeah, the, sh the sharing part's really important. And one of the things too, to, to show an example from when I started pen testing to now, there's a lot more resources out there than there were previously. I think the job's more difficult now and there's tools to make it easier, but there's a lot more sharing. So there's a lot more resources out there than there were before, a lot more educational resources. So we just have to con continue to do that. And I think too, we, I think that's important too, that I like what CrowdSec is doing is they're not putting, you know, uh, dollars above helping society and secure things. I think overall we need to look at, you know, if companies, you know, their business, they have to have money to run, but make sure they're doing something to help out. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of companies that don't have the money to secure things. You know, there's a lot of small companies that can't afford to hire a pen tester to come in and perform a pen test on their environment. And so it's just kind of up to us as a society to share that information. And I think one of the things we could do too is, is people uh, could volunteer to help some of these smaller organizations out that can't, can't protect themselves, you know, because the same way people use one company, they may use some small vendor in the case of, you know, you think of some of these uh, large retail breach where it was a HVAC company is how they got in. So if that HVAC company is not secure, maybe they can't afford to secure themselves. That goes to show how it's important to make sure everything is secure overall and not just in these big organizations, the government infrastructure, these little organizations can have an effect, you know, Maybe they could be a vendor for government or something. They get breached and, you know, you hear about all the supply chain issues and this plays into that. You know, someone that's weak in that supply chain, they have weak security. A threat actor can exploit that to gain access to something that's bigger, more impactful. It seems to me it's, it's an investment and needs to be done by, by society and by those that can because it's going to benefit again. Philippe, everybody, mm -hmm. right? So we, we need to realize that this is the only way forward. Yeah, but it's, I mean, we can we are self-sustainable as well. I mean, we can monetize yeah, no. this easily because, well, once you have a gold mine, there's always a way to rent, to, to make some rent out of it. But what we do is like people not sharing, that's fine. Like for regulatory reasons, for example, they cannot share, fine. They will buy the premium. 
Some people want to know within the minutes or within the seconds as well. It's monetiz we will do monetization here. Some people need to keep track of what have been happening over a year period, and we offer only seven days for free. You know, so the monetization is pretty easy to get, so that the the larger crowd can benefit for from the product for free, and that's fine because the one thing we bring uh, for the premium is not something that deprives you from you know uh, uh, from the free product. It's absolutely not competing with each other. We just build things on top of it, so you get better granularity, faster, better uh, you know access, multi-tenancy, SSO, multi-seats, whatever. But I wanted to touch base on what you said earlier about actually the evolution of the society as such. It's been doable to do CrowdSec now for one or two main reasons. The first thing is there was ways before. People understood that you know teaming together is beating the problem more or less, and they paved the way big time, and thank you for them. They were brilliant geniuses. The second thing is now we have an API-driven internet. When we all started our career, even though you're probably younger than I, we had something that was very simple, right? And it was not API-driven. It was more, mostly human interacting with machines. Nowadays, it's 80% machine-to-machines interacting. And then the user is just on top of it and seeing the, the end result. But that, some stuff happening below. Now, think about it this way. When Shan will want to go, or Marco, because we spoke about this earlier offline, offline you will want to go to Italy again, right? We know it, Marco. We know you, you crave for it. So you will want to go to Florence. And your AI, your personal AI, 10 years from now, it will know this. You will rent it like on a monthly basis. You will know, okay, Marco needs vacation. He loves to go to Florence. And I will need to find a time proper in the agenda. I have the agenda connection. Let me put it out. Okay, that's an API connection. And uh, he has money on the bank. That's an API connection. I know he can afford like a 3,000 budget to go to Italy. Fine. I know he likes hotel within the city. It's small, not problem, but within the city and move by on feet. But from the airport to the hotel, he will need a cab or rent a car. And the, your AI will start to connect with tons of different services to get you a package automatically. And then you will just have to say, okay, yes, you're right. Do it. I'm fine. Sign for me. And all of this will happen because of the magic of API. All of this, of what we're doing is happening because of the magic of API, but the next stage of the evolution of this digital life is totally API and AI driven. To protect those business, they will need to be able to deal with each other, like see like entities. Can I peer with this IP, with this AI, with this IP? Yes or no? Is it dangerous? Let's ask CrossSec. CrossSec, is this IP dangerous? No, not so far we know. We don't know everything, but so far we know it's clean. Okay, I'm going to connect with it. You see, this is where this has a, a tremendous value because when we start automating a lot of things, knowing who is dangerous or not, what IP is dangerous or not in real time is an extreme value. So this is where also we will monetize things so that the greater number can benefit from it for free. Thank you for that scenario. How about it? I, I think, yeah. I, and what I really want to do as we wrap here is, is just make it, I, I think it's probably clear to everybody listening and, and watching that, this is important, right? Uh, clearly, the, the scenario you described on travel, please, God, we can all do a lot more travel in the future, <laughs> the near future. Um, that's a great scenario. We also need to protect uh, our society as well, right? We need to keep keep society safe. So I think it's critical that, that we have something like this, like CrowdSec, to enable that sharing and that connection and that knowledge to make its way into every part of, 
of society. We talked a lot about business. We talked about uh, governments and things, but society needs this. And from an investment perspective, it, it doesn't have to be all money, right? It can be invest in this for a better society by sharing your data. You already generate the logs. <laughs> help, help contribute to this. And then to your point, Philippe, if, if you uh, want to better protect your company and, and your neighborhood of, of entities around you, you can invest more by subscribing to some of the premium products. And if you want to do even more, then you can support CrowdSec in different ways as well. So that the neighborhood watch and society is uh, society protection is the, the key point for me. It's the happy neighborhood. <laughs> an internet neighborhood yeah right. and i think we can protect our democracies as well with this yeah. you know, like when people are aggressing yeah. whatever party because they are different opinion or or spreading news that are inaccurate or whatever this kind of troll factory or things that are hindering the democracy can be also uh, tamed at some point you know and uh, i think I, i've got really nightmares about that so uh, i think if we can help in this that's fine um, and I think this software is a legacy. It's open source MIT, so it's, it's forever, period. If we disappear all in a plane one day, whatever, the software is there. People can take over and pursue the effort. It's going to be free forever. So there's no barrier into this. You can watch in. There's no, you know, there's no trick. There's nothing hidden. Uh, it's, uh, it's as clear as you can be. So, yeah, share, uh, partake into the effort. We are an army. We are fighting a cybercrime war here. Uh, war against cybercrime, sorry. And uh, we provide the weapon. Now we need soldiers. Yeah. And, and you know, sorry, Sean, but I go back to the fact that the entire community already is, is there, been sharing for a long time. So I think this is just the hub that connect what we are already doing with the business that is going to utilize these at a larger scale. So from individual to small community, small neighborhood, to a wider net of, of connection and sharing. So, Sean, sorry, I, I wanted just to add this one. No, just uh, actually quick quick thought uh, from you, Philip, on that. Just the uh, the, the value to the community and, and the, uh, the, the connection there. Final thought from you on that. Well, the, the community is invaluable. I mean, everybody that is stepping into the network comes with good intentions, mostly, as, as far as I can see. They are sharing together. They are helping each other. They are handing, you know, they are they are helpful to each other, like really. And some like don't know anything about cybersecurity, but they want to step in, like help their business, help their family, help whomever. And they are super pro and super. We have crazy experts in the in in the chance. I'm just lost when they talk, like really. They are like talking defensive security mechanism, like. Wow, I age so quickly. And they spend this time for free, for pleasure, for helping the others. And, and on what Marco said, I wanted to say, like, we are willing to create confederations, like, so that people are enticing and, and incited to share together. Like, you know, for example, say the hosting companies, maybe they want to together, they cannot share directly IOCs or threats because it's too direct. They are you know, they are not comfortable with that. But if we say, okay, we don't know it's coming from you. What I can tell you is this IOC come from another MSP. You can benefit from this knowledge. They will be like, okay, then I'm okay to partake into the network as well. This is what I call confederation, you know, of interests. Yeah, one of the things I'd like to, to kind of comment on to kind of a call of action for our listeners out there 
you know, information is being shared. But what's really interesting is how Philippe and CrowdSec has been able to share things. We need to be more creative about how we share. There's a lot of things that are shared out there, but whenever we can figure out how to do things like CrowdSec's doing to make a big impact, you could share a repository of tools and knowledge bases, and that's helpful. But to be able to make take that knowledge and put it into action, that's really what we need to do. We need to see more more of this. I think that's where we see the power from the knowledge. Yeah, and I I just uh, thank you both for that. And I I just want to close with this point. Uh, again, I'm going to reiterate how important this is. And a solution that we need doesn't just magically happen, right? We're talking about many, many systems, tons of data, complexity driven by APIs, something something to share data across all of that throughout society uh, doesn't happen automatically, right? We, we have to be purposeful in this. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share this story with Philippe and the CrowdSec team uh, to share the work they're doing in this regard, because a scalable system that enables this to happen is the, the, the cornerstone uh, to tackle this challenge. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's really easy to scale. It's if everyone in the community right. just talk to the next person and, you know, we're, we have a network that is going to grow to a very higher level. And I think, it, again, in the interest of the business, business make money, they're more secure. It's an investment for them and it's a better society for everybody else. So there you go. I got the moral of the story right there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, all right. Well, I think uh, the, the uh, thanks, Phil, for doing the call to action. I'm going to say everybody start with sharing, right? Yep. Sharing is caring. I think we said that on our first episode. Uh, <laughs> after one, sharing is caring. Uh, and uh, care bears come to mind, Phil. I can't, I can't get off a podcast or a webcast with you without talking about bears. And, uh, somebody, somebody's I, thought we, I thought we met it, but no. Yeah, well, well, somebody's going to have to look you up if they're interested yep. in what, what I'm talking about with bears. But uh, this shouldn't be a bear. This should be natural. This should be beneficial. And uh, thank you both for, for coming together to have this conversation, looking at yeah. the past, present, and future of of uh, information sharing and not the knowledge economy and generating a better, safer society. So thank you. Our pleasure. It's an honor. Great to see you both. Sean, not so much, but... I know. You're, you're giving me a headache, man. <laughs> Something is happening. That's not information I'm keeping to myself. You're the uh, canary, Sean. That's right, man. <laughs> I've been well, called worse. <laughs> we'll, we'll have some links. We'll have a little written story as well on, uh, on ITSP Magazine. So everybody, if you like this story, made you think, share it with everybody else. And uh, stay tuned for the next, the next episode, the next chapter of this story with, with Philippe. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and the story made you think, then share ITSBMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.